Open your Bibles to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Does anyone need a Bible this evening? Any back here? If they can, if they can read, you can have it. Psalm 78. <clears throat> Today is Father's Day, and it is our joy to love fathers and mothers and children. We hate abortion because we love your kids, and we love our families, and if you are a man, you want your family to be well. When the family is well, it's like heaven on earth. It's the closest thing, the joy of heaven on earth is when you have a wife who loves you, no tension in the home, and kids that obey the Bible and read. So it is our goal to have those kinds of families. Tonight is the 10th message on the Christian family, and we are closing the series. If tonight's message is interesting to you and you haven't heard the other ones, you can find them all on the website and listen to those if you want to arrange your family like a Christian. So this evening we are dealing on Father's Day with Psalm 78 and the Father's chief job. So we have a number of dads here. And if I asked you, what is your chief job, what would you say? We have single mothers here as well. And single children and young men and young women who have not yet been married. This can apply to you as well. Moms... If you are not, if you have children, but you don't have a father at home, you need to apply this passage as well. What is the chief job of a father? And if your father, if your husband has passed away or if you're divorced, what must you do? You must somehow pick up this role. Let's study this evening the chief role of the father. And it's found in Psalm 78. We'll only read... A few of the verses this evening, four of the verses in our study in an attempt to uncover what is the father's greatest job? What is his chief role? What are you supposed to be doing, dad? And it comes in Psalm 78, which is a psalm of history. A psalm that tells the story of the children of Israel. Do you know the story of the Old Testament? Abraham was called by God about 4,000 years ago. When he was called by God, his children were given a special status that your children are not given. They would be God's chosen people on earth. And to those people... God gave Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible. He gave them special miracles. He gave them a special covenant and the sign of the covenant. All the baby boys would be circumcised. He gave them seven special feasts. He gave them prophets. But after about 800 years, they became unhappy with this. They wanted more. They wanted a king. So they chose King Saul. And that was the first of 43 kings. 
Most of those kings were wicked. But God was still merciful and sent them prophets. Now, through that whole history, we have this psalm telling the story of that whole history. And it's a sad history because the people make mistakes constantly. They don't make right decisions. Does that sound like your life? Does that sound like my life? Well, the wisest men and women are those who learn from the historical mistakes in the past. Many of us have a, a, a big problem because we don't read history. We don't pay attention to our own history. We don't read the history of our country. We don't read the history of uns folk. I wonder if there's any Afrikaners here who have read a good history of the Afrikaans people. I, I doubt very seriously there's any Vendas here who have read a history of the Venda people because I've only found one history book and it's written by a Scottish guy. Have you read it though? I'll load it to you if you want it. And I've only found one history book of the Tsongas and I've read that one. It's only about 150 pages. It's written by a Tsonga man. If we don't know history, we are doomed to repeat it. And God has inspired this psalm to give us some idea about history. <clears throat> what history is there here? Well, it's written by the prophet Asaph. Asaph was one of David's close friends. They worked together. David chose Asaph because he was a gifted musician, good with the words and with the music. And Asaph worked together and wrote a number of psalms. And he wrote this psalm, the 78th psalm. This psalm is supposed to teach you which gives us a hint that good music should teach. We shouldn't be singing Father Abraham. How many of you know the song Father Abraham? We're never going to sing that here. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and the kids just dance. We want to sing songs like this one that teach us something that we'll learn from. So what does Asaph teach? In this amazing psalm, well, he teaches the history of the Jewish people. And it's a hard and heavy people because it says throughout the people keep sinning. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. You might not be as your fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set their heart rightly and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Whose fathers in verse 8? The fathers of the Israelites, the Jews, the Jewish people. You know the nation that's won no, more Nobel Peace Prizes than anyone in the history of the world? More prizes in physics and chemistry and biology? More amazing composers per capita come from the Jewish nation than any nation in the world. But their fathers were all stubborn. Look at verse 21. Therefore the Lord, Lord heard this and was angry so that a fire was kindled against who? Verse 21. Who was God angry with in verse 21? Jacob is a name for the people of Israel. He's angry with his own people. And anger came up against Israel. Look at verse 59. When God heard this, he was what? Full of anger. And he greatly abhorred who? Who did God greatly abhor? 
How can that be that God can abhor his own people? How can this be? This is a history of men making stupid decisions. And the reason it's in the Bible is so that we would think correctly about men. And when I say men, I mean all people. We're supposed to think correctly about our friends at work. We're supposed to think correctly about our wives and our sons and our daughters and our moms and our dads. One of the ways you'll think correctly is if you read history and you realize, oh, those people made some very foolish decisions. Can I look back in my life and find some foolish decisions? Can I look into the future and find foolish decisions I might make unless somehow I can get this wisdom out of the book and into my brain and then down into my heart unless God himself will help me? That's what's happening right here. That's the history. This history lesson is told over and over and over. If you read Psalm 105, it's the same. Don't go there. but it's, oh, You can if you want, but it's the same story. Psalm 106, the same story. Psalm 114, it's throughout the prophets. Read Isaiah, Jeremiah. They're going to repeat this theme. They're going to go right back to the beginning with Abraham. They're going to talk about what did the Jews do from the beginning. And the prophets are going to call the Jewish people stiff-necked, stubborn, hard-hearted. Is that like you? Is that like your family? You're supposed to see yourself in this. But if we're proud, we won't see ourselves. Now, having unpacked the background, having seen some of these these great stories that are going through the history of the Jewish nation, the story is pretty simple. God gave them the law, they wouldn't obey. God sent them prophets, they changed for a week or two. God sent them miracles, they changed for a month or two. God sent them a great king, they changed until the king dies. But look at the history, and it's constantly going down, like a jagged line, maybe down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. But over the time, it's more down than. So they're constantly failing. So I want to know now, what should I do with this history? And the answer is, the father should teach his children from this history. Let's look now at a passage for tonight. We're only looking at four verses, verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. Do we have a good background now? You understand the psalm? The psalm is a story of Israel. Now let's look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. And our goal tonight is to understand these verses because good teachers can explain their point and then illustrate it. Asaph does that. He explains his point in verses 1 to 8. And then he's going to illustrate his point from verse 9 to the end. I just gave you the illustration. Israel keeps falling. Because the fathers did not do what we're about to read. You you with me? It's pretty simple, right? Israel makes mistakes. Their lives are ruined. Eventually their whole country was destroyed. Because the dads, it rests on the man. He's called the head of the home. And if our country goes, it's because the men didn't stand up. 
So, why did the country go bad? Because the men failed right here. If you want to hear a feel-good message on Father's Day, go somewhere else. We're interested in saving our families, right? So let's see verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. The Bible says, For he established a testimony in Jacob. That's Jehovah. And he appointed a law in Israel. Which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to whom? The fathers are given a command to tell to? Verse 6. So that with this cause, this is, or this is the result. If the fathers do this, here's the result. The generation to come will know. Even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare to their own children. Verse 7. So that they might set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God. But keep his commandments. Verse 8. And they might not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. I would like us to understand that God calls fathers to lead their families in worship. God calls fathers and gives them so many reasons. It's almost like a boxer who's overpowering his opponent and rains down one blow after another and the other man is falling and faltering and can't even put up a defense. And the, the man who's his opponent continues to pound him saying, you're going to fall to that mat. And that's what our Lord does in this passage. He says, dads, get it. Reason, reason, reason. And when the first reason hits you, think that's so strong. And the second reason hits you and you're staggering backward. And the third reason and the fourth reason And here they are, reason after reason, pouring out on us. Five of them. So I'd like to tonight show you, first of all, in verse 5, what are men called to do? They're called to teach their their families in family worship. That's verse 5. The calling that God has given to men. So if you're marking in your Bibles, you can mark that down. The job of fathers, the calling to fathers, family worship, whatever you want. You can put that in verse 5. Then in verses 6, 7, and 8, in three verses, we're going to find five reasons or motives. Okay? So it's a pretty simple structure. And then from verses 9 to the end of the chapter, he's going to give illustrations if you don't do it. Now, I already told you about the illustrations. And maybe you've got some from your own life. Your life will be a mess. Your children will be a mess. Everything will go wrong. And the impact you have on society will be bad if you don't do this. Okay? So now let's see what, is, what are men called to do and what are the five reasons to do it? Number one, what are men called to do? Verse five. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. What was that law? I already told you. It's those five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the first five books of the Bible. That's called the Pentateuch. Kids, what's it called? Pentateuch. Pentateuch. It means the five, the five words, the five teachings, the five 
instructions, this Pentateuch, the writing that comes in a set of five. Genesis, the history book. Exodus, the history, half history and half laws. Leviticus, the rules to be holy. Numbers, the wandering in the wilderness. Deuteronomy, a series of sermons right at the promised land. You've got two million people waiting at the promised land and Moses stops them to preach to them for a month. That's Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy means second law. Deutero to namas law, second law. He's just repeating the stuff in Exodus. Most of it is repeat, which is very instructive by itself. If God puts a whole book in the Bible for repeating, we should probably return to the main themes over and over again. God gave this law to whom? In verse 5, who did he give it to? A specific nation, an ethnicity, a culture. They were given this. And when he gave them this, he established something. What is it? A law in Israel, a testimony in Jacob, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children. A law, a testimony, a commandment, a process of passing on to our children. Can we sum all that up with one English word? Heritage. You could call it culture if you'd like. We all have a culture. There's an Afrikaans culture, there's a Venda culture, there's an American culture. My goal is to give my children a Christian culture. That's what's said here. He gave them a testimony. He gave them a law. That is the first five books. But look in those first five books. You've got feasts. You've got seven feasts a year. That's about one every two months. Got something to look forward to. Hey, kids, there's something coming up. Eight weeks, we're going to have another feast. Although they weren't spaced out two months apart. He gave them a culture, a heritage. And that's what's given to them here in these feasts, these ceremonies, these customs, meals, clothing, songs. The entire religion and the culture that it created. Friends, a Christian culture is firstly the gospel message. I wonder how many people know the gospel. I told this in Elam, I'll just tell you now because it will be so instructive and it will wake you up. Today, while we were in Valdesia, about, what, 2 o'clock today. I was driving to get the, one, the people from the one village. And as I was coming back, or as I was going there, a man wanted a lift. He, could, he was wearing a suit coat, so I thought he probably just came from church. I said, hey, do you need a lift? Get in. Since I knew we only had about one kilometer to go, I asked him right up, what did you learn in church today? And he said, I learned to take myself seriously. So I had my Bible there, and I handed it to him and said, Great. Where's that in the Bible? To take yourself seriously. And he said, oh, well, yeah, I don't know. I said, did the pastor tell you? Oh, hey, shh, Uh, yeah, I forgot. So I thought, I've got 500 meters left before you got to get out of this vehicle. And and I'm, I'm taking your ridiculous answer seriously, although I'm not taking you seriously. And let me ask you, When you die, where are you going to go? I did that just now. When you die, where will you go? I'm going to heaven. How do you know? Oh, I've lived a good life. You forgot something. What did you forget? Oh, um, 
If I live a good life, I haven't forgotten anything. Well, you've forgotten something very big and you called yourself a Christian and you don't even know what you forgot. I'll give you one more chance. What did you forget? Then we got, actually got out of the vehicle while the women were loading and I'm still talking, trying to get every second out of this guy. The women even heard me talking to him. They all said, oh, we know him. We, later on, they said, we know him. We know where he goes. He calls himself an apostle. And I said, so what did you forget? Oh, I don't know. So you're telling me, just, just up front, you're telling me, when you die, you're going to go to heaven and God himself, the creator of the world, is going to say, hey, come in. And the reason he's going to say come in is because there's bad people in this world. There's guys who break in and steal things. There's men who rape women, but not you. You're a good one. So he's going to let you in. Yeah. Well, let me just tell you right now, you are not a Christian. You are lying to yourself. Satan is deceiving you. You are entirely blinded. You are going to die and go to hell because you're completely confused. And here's what you forgot. You forgot Jesus Christ. So don't ever, I said this to him, the women heard me. Don't ever say that you are a Christian and forget Christ like that because you're lost. And then he said, oh, pastor, oh, you're a true pastor. And I said, well, I am, and you're not a Christian. So he said, when can we meet? And I gave him my paper and said, but I'll tell you, you know what? People lie to me all the time, so I don't think you're going to meet with me because what I said probably cut you and hurt you, but it's true. But if you really want to know the truth, I'm here every Friday, I'm here Sunday, I'll meet with you. A Christian culture starts with the gospel. Why did I share that story? Oh, because by the way, the women got in and said, oh, we know which church it is. It's the biggest church in Valdezia. It has hundreds of people. I'm not surprised because there are no churches in Valdezia, although there are 34 religious buildings who call themselves by the Christian name. Because to be a church, you've got to start with the gospel message. To have a Christian heritage and a Christian culture, you've got to start with the gospel message. Can anyone tell me in 30 seconds, what is the gospel message? Caleb, shoot. I am a very wicked sinner and dead in my trespasses and sins, but Christ gave me his righteousness on the cross, and through faith I can receive it, and now I strive to live for him and not for myself. I'm bad. Christ died for me. You missed that. You've got no gospel. You're not a Christian. You're lying to yourself. I don't care if you've been... You've been... Chicken on the top or whatever you've been. You're lost. You're outside of Christ. I don't care if you call yourself an apostle. you got more stickers on the back of your car than someone. It doesn't matter. You're lost. If you don't have that, you are going to hell. A Christian culture and a Christian heritage starts with the facts of the gospel, but it goes further. It goes beyond that. Because it is more broadly, a Christian culture is, listen to this, it's a quote from Roger Scruton, the Anglican philosopher in London, who says this, a culture is the pursuit of true judgment. We make judgments all the time about what time to get up, what time to, uh, uh, how to eat, how to get dressed, um, who to live with, uh, what language to talk, what religion to be. We make decisions about how to drive, what kind of car to drive. We make decisions about all kinds of things, what kind of music to listen to, what books to read, what TV shows to watch, where in town to live, if to live in town or on the farm or... We make decisions constantly, and the collective grouping of those judgments could be called our culture. 
Your culture, the vendor, the song of the American culture, tells us what you think about family. So if your culture does not eat mother, father, and children at the same time, for example, if the mother cooks at, let's just say, one o'clock in the afternoon, and then the children come home at two, the first child gets there at two, takes a plate of Vusha Nanyama and goes over here and eats. And then the next child comes home at 2.20, takes a plate of Vusha Nanyama and eats over there. And then the next child comes home at 3.30 and eats over there. And then the mother comes home at, then the mother has already eaten and the father eats. And another. That tells us something about your judgment. It tells us they made a judgment about the idea of eating and the idea of family and the idea of communication. They made a judgment and that schedule of food. Here's another one. What if your dinner on Tuesday night is you sit in front of the TV, and if your daughter says, Dad, can I tell you at school? You say, hey, this, this is on the TV. That too tells us something about your judgment. It tells that box and whatever's happening there is a little bit more important than the little girl who's being taught very carefully by you that she doesn't matter at all in your eyes. Right? These collective pursuits of judgment, that's what Scruton says, a culture is our pursuit of judgment. When at whatever we think is most valuable, it's going to show up in our culture. In verse 5, we have a testimony, a law, a commandment to pass on to children. It's the Pentateuch, it's feasts, it's meals. It's a whole way of life. There were clothing. There were rules about beards for the Jews. There were ways to walk, days to walk, days to rest, days to work. There was... The whole life was structured. Islam is that way. Christianity is that way. We're all that way. We've got our structure. And the secular world is trying to teach us how to arrange our lives too. You've got to do this at school. You've got to start school at what, three now? When, when are you supposed to send your kids to school? What, what, what age are you supposed to send your kids now to preschool? No, there's before that, isn't it? I've seen... I have seen schools here dropping off one-year-olds at seven in the morning. There was a family over here on, by us in Old Town where we're staying. I went over to visit them one time and it was in the afternoon and a mother came to pick up the baby. It was a one-year-old. And I said, oh, wow, that's a little baby to be at this preschool, this daycare, this creche. I said, oh yeah, oh, it's so hard. Yeah, the mother has to work. What time does the mother drop him off? The mother drops her off at seven. It's about 4.30, a one-year-old. That's a set of judgments. They're, they're teaching something. There's, there's a whole collection of judgments that go in there. And the car that the particular one was driving was pretty nice. It tells us these things are important. These things are important. This is not as important. A culture is a collection of our judgments. And fathers have to decide what judgments are going to be allowed inside this home. There's a certain set of judgments. If they're going to be allowed inside this home and no others, what judgments are you going to allow? And Jehovah commanded that this heritage would be passed on. It comes from God and it's given to fathers and they're commanded to pass on this heritage, this culture and the target is the families. So let me, let me give you a definition of family worship. Here it is. Here's the definition because family worship is the chief job of the father. Here, here's the definition. Dad, one, two, three, four, five, six. I'll count you as an honorary dad. Seven. 
And you young men, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you're gonna be dads. You're gonna learn right now, you're gonna have one big job in life. Here it is. You're gonna have to lead your family in worship. What is family worship? Here it is, short definition. The task commanded to fathers to teach their children the heritage of the Lord. That's it. The task given to dad to teach his children this culture, this heritage, this collection that comes from God. It's Christian culture, not Afrikaans culture. I don't want to raise Burkis. I want to raise Christian keys. I don't, certainly don't want to raise American keys. The more I see the politics and the movies and music and news from America, the more I say, take me to heaven. I don't want to raise little Americans. I don't want to raise little Afrikaners or little vendors. Certainly don't want to raise Tsongas. I want to raise little Christians, and I've got to do that. I've got five chances to do it. I am commanded to do that. So let me give you some practical methods. Maybe there are moms or dads who are here saying, okay, this sounds philosophical. Like the task is dads have to pass on a Christian culture. Okay, how do I do that? Let me give you nine ways to do that. Very quickly. This is all under point number one. Singing. Choose one hymn per month. One song. You got these song books? I'll even give you them or print some more out for you or whatever. You can get these yourself. Do Google them or whatever. Choose one song per month and sing it with your kids so that they'll start to learn godly biblical songs that teach something more than Father Abraham had many sons. Choose one hymn per month. Make it a solid hymn. If you need help, ask me. Or just take the songbook. Ask me first before you take the songbook. But take the songbook and use the songbook. And sing it. If the kids already learned it in church, they can sing it at home. Singing, that's one option. Character trait. We've done this for about 10 years or so with our kids. Every month we have a different character trait. So we've chosen self-control, hard work, holding your tongue. I think we should do that 12 months in a row. In fact, this year, Alpheus, this year, every single month of 2021, our character trait is something about controlling your tongue. I think Americans might need that more than anyone else. I'm not sure. We need help. Here's the third one. What can you do? Okay. Memorize something. Memorize a verse from the Bible. Your whole family can memorize. As a family, we've memorized James, Philippians, and a number of chapters from Proverbs. I'm not telling you that so that there will be any, I don't want any attention on myself. I'm only telling you that so that you can see it can be done. My children aren't specific, particularly bright. Sorry, kids, it's just the truth. They're just normal kids. What we do is this. If you want to know how do you memorize a whole book of the Bible with your kids, here's what you do. You say, let's take five to ten verses a month. Every night you read five to ten verses twice. That's it. The book of James, we memorized, start to finish, five to ten verses a month, we read the verses twice. Sometimes the kids aren't paying attention. Sometimes they're doing all kinds of stuff. You know, kids are kids. My kids, maybe more, I don't know. We just read the verses. By the end of the month, you're going to have that guy saying the verse, saying, how'd you learn that? I don't know. 
Dad, you read it to him two times for 30 days. That's 60 times. The kids are clever. You let them in front of the TV, and how do they know every song? I, this, this show's on at 2 o'clock. This show's half past 2. This show's 3. This show's half past 3. 4 o'clock. And they can sing the songs word perfect for everyone and probably do the dance of the people. Your kids can memorize a book of the Bible like that. Dads, practice memorizing the Bible. And if you say five verses too much, do one verse. Your kids will get that in like three days. Have a contest with the kids, by the way. This isn't on the list. This is another thing. Have a contest. If your kids are this kind, say, hey, whoever gets it first gets a chocolate. Whoever gets it first gets a such and such. Whoever gets it first, I'll give you a high five. Kids love to perform, and they love smiles from dad. Hugs and congratulations. Get them to perform so that Dwayne and Dylan are shooting his verse out. Say, man, she's 14. She can't even figure it out. The eight-year-old's got it. Eight, right? And the eight-year-olds get it before the 14-year-old. Number four, catechism. Catechism. I think I took all the catechisms this morning. Catechism is a series of questions and answers. We have one here at our church. We have it in Tsonga, English, Afrikaans, and Shona. It might be nice to translate it into Venda, perhaps someday. Dear Brother DeCaro promised to have it translated back in 2020, but apparently COVID kept him too busy to translate a catechism for poor Venda children. We have a catechism in Tsonga, Afrikaans, English. A catechism is just questions and answers so that your kids can learn the most important things in the world. Questions like, who made you? And then they answer, God. What else did God make? Answer? One person, Callie, what else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things, Colin? Speak clearly. For his own glory. And the questions go on. 140 questions or so. 140 questions, 50 weeks in a year. You do about three questions a week. Your kids will be quoting the whole thing, start to finish. How do your kids know the Ten Commandments? Oh, they're geniuses. No, don't, don't let, no, 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 they're not. It doesn't help at all if people think your kids are geniuses because then they won't copy you. Our goal is for everyone in the world to do this, Okay. So if everyone says, oh, pastor's kids are so clever, then I totally messed it. My kids are normal. Your kids are normal. You can do this. This is something we can all do if you get up and do it, Dad. Catechism. Bible reading. Read the Bible. Just pick a book and read through it. Read five minutes a day. Number six, prayer requests. Choose specific prayer requests. Like we're praying for... Tani so-and-so to be converted. We're praying for Uum to be converted. We're praying for our kids to be converted. Pray for specific spiritual prayer requests. Number seven, read other good books. Maybe while you're eating. Maybe while you're driving. Maybe at night. Read other good books. Or you can do it at night in family worship. Usually we take about 15 minutes for our family worship. Usually. Sometimes it goes a little longer. Usually it's 15 minutes. If you say, wow, this sounds so hard. How can I do this? I didn't go to college. It takes 15 minutes. You can't sing a song and you say, well, but I'm not a good reader. Someone in your home's got to be a good reader. If not, have them compete to see who the best reader is. You can't read 10 verses. Give it a try. 
Practice memorizing a verse or two verses. You don't have to do all these things. These are just ideas. We follow most of these ideas. There may be 50 other ideas. My point is, dads, you've got to pass on a Christian culture to your children. The old Puritans did it twice a day. Richard Baxter, this book right here, says it's a sin if you don't do it twice a day. Because Psalm says, in the morning and at night. And Deuteronomy says, when I wake up and when I go to bed. I don't say it's a sin if you don't do it twice a day. The old guys did. And the old guys are the greatest in the history of the church. So you can choose. We do it once a day, usually. But when we have church, for example, tonight, we're not going to do family worship because my family is here worshiping. Tuesday nights, we have theology class. And since they're all coming to the class, we don't do it Tuesday nights. Thursday nights, we have prayer meetings, so we don't do it Thursdays. So our family does family worship how many days a week? Four nights. 15 minutes, four nights a week. But if you don't come to theology class, then do it five nights. If you don't come to the prayer meeting, do it six nights. If you don't come to Sunday night, shame on you. Build a Christian culture for your family, Dad. Man up. It's time to pick up the responsibility and say, I'm going to do this. I'm not, I, they're not going to blame me in a hundred years and look back and say, yeah, those ums, those, those guys, they never read their Bible. No, they're going to look back and say, most of them did it, but that guy was a man. Dakaro, that was the man. It was your grandfather that had a big part in leading you to Christ. Right? It would be wonderful if your grandchildren said the same thing. It was my granddad. Pass it on so it's a multi-generational heritage. The fathers must pass this on to their children. This is most remarkable. Look in verse 5. Look in verse 5. This is beautiful. It says, they should make these known to whom? Who should the fathers teach in verse 5? And in verse 6? Okay, the next generation, that's the generation after your children, that's your grandchildren. And then who else? The unborn. And they will declare it to their children. This is four generations. Dad is teaching his kids, and he's doing it with an eye to his grandkids and his great-grandkids. I now, with the help of this passage, and this man, and Brother Paul Schleyline, and other godly men, I now pray for my grandchildren. I am now parenting for my great-grandchildren. My goal is to set up a dynasty. I don't care at all if they're rich. What I want is these men, every single one of them. I don't want to lose one of my kids or my grandkids or my great-grandkids. Dad, men want a challenge. Why do we go on mountain bike rides? Why do we jump out of airplanes and, and pay money to jump out of airplanes? Why do we tie a piece of rubber to our foot and jump into a river and then have it spring back a meter before our head goes in the water? And I heard there's this thing now. They've measured it so you can actually dive and your head dips into the river with crocodiles and then shoots you back out in a bungee jump. Men will pay to do that. Why? Because we want some kind of thrill. How's this for a thrill? Look 400 years down the future and see in your mind's eye all your kids and your grandkids and your great-great-grandkids and say, God helping me, I'm going to raise them to be Christians. Isn't that enough for men to say, I'll be the man for that. Let these other little boys who call themselves men 
take their bikes and ride up a mountain or do something like this. Let them try. Oh, my, my dirt bike, man, I, I jumped 25 meters. Man, I jumped through four circles of fire over 10 cars. Yeah, and your kids hate you. That's going to be a lot of fun when you're 72. Raise your children and your grandchildren. And this command is specifically given to the men. It's given to the fathers in verse 3, verse 5, verse 8. In verse 9, it's the sons that are commanded. There are over 100 personal pronouns in this psalm. And every single one of them are masculine. Our world hates masculinity because our world hates Christianity. But biblical masculinity is men standing up sacrificially saying, I'm going to lead my family. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to wash her feet. When she's sick on Father's Day, I'm not going to ask for a meal. I'm going to serve her. I'm going to be the man. When the meals are served, I'm going to see where's the biggest plate and make sure my kids and wife have the best. And if it means I don't get as much, I'm okay with that because I'm the man. And that's what men do. Rather than the idea that I'm the head honcho. I get the best of everything. Deuteronomy 6, 7, fathers are commanded to teach their sons. Ephesians 6, verse 4, fathers are commanded to bring up their children. Malachi 4, 6, the last verse in the Old Testament. The last verse. Not going to hear anything from God for 350 years. No more revelations. Last verse. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children to the fathers so that you will know the new covenant has come. How are you going to know? How are you going to know that there's true Christianity? I'll tell you the answer. When fathers read and pray with their kids. You're not perfect? Fair enough. Make mistakes? Your kids will forgive you. Kids are remarkably forgiving. If they just see you love them and try every time. They see you're humble and you say them openly. Hey man, I guess I messed that one. I'm sorry. The kids are going to, that's going to glue you to them. You just keep trying and don't give up. John Payton went to the New Hebrides Islands, the islands of Vanuatu, out by Australia, up to the northeast of Australia in the Pacific Ocean. He went there in the 1830s when they were cannibals. They killed and cooked visitors to their islands. John Payton went there with his first wife. His first wife died within a year and his first child. He's there by himself. He gets death threats every single day. He stays there four years, zero converts. He finally leaves the island because the entire island chases him. He sleeps in a tree overnight as he hears them running underneath him. He gets out of the tree, gets out to the land, finds a trading ship that's going by, hails it, gets in and goes. He doesn't quit. Gets a second wife, tells her up front, my previous wife died, do you want to go with me? She says, let's do it. They go back to the islands. They go to the next island the whole island becomes converted. And Peyton says, I'm paraphrasing, in his autobiography, the way I knew that this, these people had truly been converted, I could hear the fathers reading and praying with their kids at night. These are people that never wore clothes until the 1830s. These are people who killed and cooked the people they defeated. These are people whose average life expectancy was under 40 because they murdered so many people. 
It was a wicked, violent, degraded, animal-like place. But then they started reading and praying. And Peyton says, I know religions come here. And today, there's a thriving five-sola church, series of churches on those islands. God did it. Those men passed it on 200 years now. Are you better than naked savages? Then pass it on to your kids and to your grandchildren. Well, that's the first point. I'm sure my time's up. Almost up. Let me just give these reasons. Why should we do this? Why should we try 15 minutes a night... Why should we try 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night? Why should we try to do these things? Why should we try? Some of you would say, I don't even own one Christian book in my home. More than 100 pages. Hey, fair enough. You've got to start somewhere. Some of you say, I don't even own a catechism. My kids don't own Bibles. What, what am I supposed to do? Start. Try. Let me give you these five motives that are straight from the passage. Verse 6. What's the first motive? Why should we do this? Verse 6. <clears throat> so that the generation to come would know the Lord. Multi-generational godliness would spring up. In the book World Christian Trends, <clears throat> it documents that 12 times more children are born to Christian homes than converted as adults. Did you hear that? 12 times more people are born into a home where the father and mother claim to be Christian than claim to be converted as 25-year-olds or 30-year-olds or 40-year-olds or 45-year-olds. That means that we have a massive mission field in our own homes. The easiest and best place to find converts is not Chakota. It's your living room. The easiest and best place to find converts is the kids in your bed. Deuteronomy 6.2, it says, teach them to your sons and your sons' sons. Proverbs says, my son, 23 times. We've got to have eyes for our children. What's the second reason? Verse 7. So that they might set their hope in God. Wow! Here's something. Dads, Lead your families in family worship so they wouldn't fall to depression. So that they would set their hope in God. What does that mean? It means drawing the affections of your children away from money, away from boyfriends, away from girlfriends, away from peer pressure, away from cool clothes. It means drawing your children's affections away first to yourself because what can a three-year-old understand? First to you as dad and mom and then secondly, right past you to the real father. We've heard it twice in our prayers tonight, Brother Isaac and Mugove. Right to the true father, our heavenly father. How can we expect them to go to heaven if they are worldlings? If they love everything about this world, if they prefer to stay on earth than go to heaven? I told you this before, I heard a quote preacher, close quote, not a true preacher, but a preacher in Elam, I documented this, a vendor man wanting to preach in Elam, he preached at a crusade where I was at, and he said to the people, quote, you don't want to go to heaven, it's boring there, close quote. He said many other wicked and blasphemous things, that was just one thing he said in front of hundreds of people, 
Is it any wonder that I'm telling you there's no Christians in the rural areas? Or none to speak of. When you hear, oh, I go to church, don't think of it as a church. Your default setting should be, prove it. Because I, I, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I've seen enough to realize most people will talk about being religious, but they're not. How can our children expect to go to heaven without true converting grace? Listen to Charles Spurgeon's prayer for his mother. I'm sorry, Charles Spurgeon's mother's prayer. I think I read this to you in the biography a few weeks ago. Quote, now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul will bear a witness against my children at the day of judgment if they do not lay hold of Christ. What does it mean to hope in God but to cast your soul on Christ? Every one of the children, look at me, please. I'm going to do right now for you what your dad should be doing for you every day. I want you to put your hope in God, in Christ Jr. You've got to turn all of your heart and love to Christ. Kulani, I'm talking to you, man. You've got to put all of your little heart on Him. Everything, it's got to be on Him. Dads do that every day. You say, well, I'm just repeating myself. Great, maybe they'll get it. Reason number three, verse seven. So that they will not forget the works of God. Do you see that in there? We are prone to forget. We are constant forgetters. But, but Asaph doesn't want us to forget. He says, dads, I'm commanding you to teach your kids so that they won't forget. That's the reason. Your kids will forget. Don't be surprised when they forget. Be shocked if they don't forget. I expect you as the church members to forget. How many times have I preached things, I come back the next week and think, that guy forgot what I said. <laughs> I, I told you. This is why John, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the preacher in London, he would not counsel anyone privately unless they came for 13 straight weeks to hear him preach on Sunday. Because he said, I know your problems, and I'm going to solve them if you just come hear me preach. It'll save you time, it'll save me time. So if you're not really committed to this, then don't waste my time at home. I'm a busy man. <laughs> but if you come for 13 weeks, you still have a problem, I'll meet with you anytime you want. That would probably save me some time too. I'll meet with you for sure. Come 13 weeks. If you still got a problem after 13, 13 weeks, about three months. I'm pretty sure that the Bible for three months, straight Bible, an IV of Bible into your blood for three months, that's going to fix just about everything. Sadly, we don't have preachers like Lloyd-Jones. Maybe God will give us one here. Brother Mugobe, Caleb, the third reason is not to forget God's works so they will know these things with certainty. We've got to remember things. There's certain things we must forget and there's certain things we must remember. We tend to switch the two. We put the wrong label on the bottle. There's the bottle, stuff to forget. Here's the bottle, stuff never to forget. And we switch the label. What are some things we should forget? Things in this jar, you've got to forget this. <laughs> things in this world. Sins against us. Yeah, what she did to you, forget that part. Just forget that part. What that guy and that, you, that guy at work, yeah, put that in the bottle, forget. Close the lid, you don't need that one anymore. What are the things you must never forget? 
What about the active obedience of Christ? The active obedience of Christ is that he lived for how many years on this earth? What kid knows? How many years did Jesus live on the earth? 33 years. He lived for 33 years. The active obedience of Christ is that for 33 years he obeyed all of the laws for you. You should remember that. I think you're going to forget it. But don't. You should remember that. Think often that every day Jesus got up, he obeyed all the laws for you. That's wonderful. Don't forget that one. But we switch the labels and we put all of our time on what she said. I can't believe she'd say that to me. Did she forget what I did for her? Forget the things you did for her and forget the things she did against you. And remember things like the act of obedience of Christ. Remember the second coming. Remember the cross. Remember election and adoption and glorification. Remember justification and redemption. Remember to read your Bible. Number four, look in verse seven. What's the fourth motive to do family worship? If you do family worship, your children might do this. What is it? Keep it. They might obey the Bible. They might obey God's commandments. If you do family worship, your kids might make it to marriage as virgins. Hey, mom and dad, don't you want that? Don't expect your kids are going to turn out right. Your kids have a bad heart. We said this morning, right? They're born into the world as children of Satan. Every one of my little guys, I love them dearly. They're born lost. They're born as children of Satan. They've got to be born a second time. It's not going to work unless some kind of power comes in there. Don't expect them to make it to marriage as pure kids. Don't expect them to make wise decisions with their money. You say, why did you buy that car? What were you thinking? That's, oh my, you, you spent, how much? You spent that much? They're going to do that. Of course, unless you come and train. Train them to obey the laws of God. Train them to obey the laws of Christ. How does the law of God affect what car they buy when they're 24? Because if they're obeying the laws of God, they will come and ask dad, hey dad, I'm thinking about getting this Audi. Not that if you have an Audi, it's bad. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a 2022, yeah, it's a 480,000. Yeah, I, I'm, well, have you got a house yet? No. Got a wife? No. How much are you getting in your job? Uh, 6000 a month. How much is the payment? 4900 Ooh. You know, it's a sin for that boy not to ask his dad. What do you think, dad? And for dad not to give good answer and not to train him well. Brothers and sisters, we do family worship so that our kids will obey the commandments of God. Fifth reason, verse 8. Why? Why must we... Teach our kids. Fifth reason, verse 8. So that they will not be like their fathers. Or we can put it this way, much harsher. Moms and dads, we close with the harshest one. So that they will not be finally lost. This generation, in verse 8, was the generation that was cut off in the wilderness. They were cut off. God killed them. If you love your children, 
do family worship and prepare this culture to pass on so that they'll obey, so that they will be spared from things that came to other men and women. Well, there's much more to say about this. There are objections to this wonderful practice. Let me give you a few of these. I'm not used to it. Some people say, I've been a Christian, and I, I'm just not used to it. I've been a Christian for a number of years. We've never done this. Well, change. Change. Can you give a good reason why you shouldn't change right now? I mean, I'm, I'm talking for tomorrow night, Monday night. Is there a good reason why you shouldn't do it for tomorrow night? Change. Objection number two. Some people say, I tried this before, and then I just quit after three months. Well, you tried taking baths. Shouldn't you pick that practice up again? Say, so, well, I, I tried to drive safely, but then I got in a car accident. What, you're just going to ram every car you see now? Well, I tried to be healthy, but then I got sick once. What, so you're just going to not pay attention to health anymore? We all try things. Keep trying. What about this one? I'm a single mom. Oh, brothers and sisters, if there is a single mom who says, I want to do this, but it's hard. I'm a mom. I'm exhausted. I come home. The kids, I just have no more emotional strength. My answer to you is, we love you. This has got to be hard, but God will give you help. He will strengthen you. Pray to him. Talk to us at church. Talk to us privately. We'll help you in any way we can. That's why you've got a family. God will give you help and so will we. Objection number four. Well, my children are all out of the house. Well, what about you and your wife? Is she in glory yet? Is she in heaven yet? What about your grandchildren? Now, next one. Well, I'm not good at reading. I understand almost no one reads these days. The television has taught us and these pocket computers have taught us don't read. I understand that. I didn't read very much myself until I was about 26 years old. I'm 43 now. I would strongly encourage you just to start wherever you're at. You may never be a great reader, but start and try because the Bible is a, the Bible makes us a a reading religion. We're not like Islam where you can get by without reading the Quran. We're not like Islam, uh, Buddhism where you have no book to read. We're not like African traditional religion that never wrote anything down. We have a book and you've got to read it every day or you're in great danger. Number six. Well, I take my family to church and that's enough. Asaph did not think that was enough. He thought fathers need to teach their kids at home. What if you were given 100,000 Rand, 100,000 Rand, here it is, it's sitting up front, 100,000 Rand, you walk up, you pick up some stacks of the 200 Rand bills, you put them in your pockets, you say, hey, my pockets are full, ah, uh, that's enough, and you leave 80,000, would anyone do that? No. That's what you're doing when you say, well, I come to church Sunday morning, that's enough, it shows that you have a heart that doesn't love the things of God, ask God to give you a new heart. If you would gladly leave 80,000 rand, then I'll tell you, you don't love the money. But if you would gladly leave family worship, you don't love worship and you don't love your family, no matter what you say. Someone else says, our family is too busy. Ah, ah, this is the real objection. This is the real problem. People say, our family is too busy. And the answer to that is, no, it's not. You just chose what's important. You chose that soccer and sports and TV and work, you chose that family visits 
and your own sleep, you chose that those things are really important. To my shame, it was my wife who began family worship in our home when my boy was about three. And I thank God for Amy. But I want us all right now to take this sermon and this passage and say, God helping me, I will lead my family to heaven and my children's children and their children. Let's close. Our first character this evening is David Brainerd. And as we learn about his life, I'd like to begin with Proverbs 16, verse 9. Please turn your Bibles to Proverbs 16 and verse 9. We're going to try to draw out the idea of God's will and discerning God's will. Many of you have certain plans and dreams for your life. And God has different plans and dreams for your life. We're going to learn an example of this from the book of Proverbs and primarily this evening from the life of of David Brainerd. Pastor Seth has given us a great example of biographies throughout the years, and he has spent sermon length series on great men in church history. Mine are a bit shorter, and think of these stories as a diving board into the pool. This is not the pool itself. This is just a diving board to help you get into the pool. So I'm just going to give you a little taste of David Brainerd and, Lord willing, later on, Richard Baxter. And in between that sandwich, we'll have the meat of George Whitfield from Pastor Seth. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Let's look at a great character in church history to help us understand this particular verse. Because, as this verse tells us, our plans are not always God's plans. My plan was to go to Ghana, West Africa in 2005, and that was shut off because God had different plans for me. We walk down path A, but for whatever reason, path A is blocked. Have you ever had that happen to you before? More like how many times has that happened to you before? And so we try path A again, and still nothing. And now what do we do? Is God finished with us? Should we quit? Or do we get busy serving God in another capacity like the man in this evening's story? Ivor Jeffries. No, it's not Ivor Jeffries. It's David Brainerd. Well, I know David Brainerd personally. Not quite David Brainerd. I know... David de Brainerd. He's not the same one. He's also a godly man, and we might do David de Brainerd someday, but this is similar. It's David Brainerd, and David Brainerd was born in Connecticut 
in 1718. That is in the United States. So this was before the United States even became a country. During this time, great evangelists like John Wesley, George Whitfield, and Jonathan Edwards were around. They were born just a few years earlier, and their ministries would have a tremendous effect on David Brainerd. Well, David Brainerd grew up in a family that was not strong physically. In fact, his father died when David was only nine years old. And his mother died when Brainerd was 13 years old. Brainerd was one of nine children. There were five boys and four girls. And David was the third oldest. In fact, his younger brother, John became his successor. When David Brainerd died, he became his successor to the Indians that he served as a missionary. Four of the Brainerd children died in their 20s or 30s, including David, who would die at age 29. Reminds us a little bit of... Robert Murray McChain, that's right. What a gift the Lord has given us in this world today. Uh, Really one of the blessings of capitalism. And that is children bury their parents. We We live in a day today where that's the norm, but that's not always been the norm. In fact, the norm has often been parents burying their children Well, what Brainerd lacked in body, he made up for in mind. He was intelligent and he was a lover of books, even reading through the Bible twice a year before he was converted. Now, I just want to apologize now because I'm going to do my best to explain this life. But David Brainerd, his, his journal, which we're going to talk about in a moment, it is not easy reading. I have Jonathan Edwards' two-volume biography. I didn't bring it with me today because it's so big. Imagine two hardback books this thick, and the words are tiny print, and it's double column. And I read as much again the last couple days of Brainerd's life and it is, it is difficult. It can be depressing. But there was a shift in my perspective of Brainerd. I want to tell you about that shift a little bit later on. Uh, he was an amazing man. And you read about his life. He, he writes like a believer before he was a believer. I mean, he was fasting. He was praying. He was reading through his Bible multiple times a year, even before conversion. He ultimately was uh, born again at age 21 while taking a walk alone and praying. And suddenly the, the Lord opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel and brought him to what he says, a hearty desire to exalt Jesus Christ. There was a battle back and forth. Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? I sense my own sin. How can I come to Christ? 
Well, after his conversion, later that year, he entered Yale College to prepare for pastoral ministry. He did well academically. He finished first in his class. And even more, he was growing spiritually with revival sweeping through the college, a college that had been cold for many, many years when it came to spiritual things. But all that changed, that is the coldness, changed in 1742 during his third year at the university, his junior year. And as there was a great revival and and movement of the Holy Spirit going through the school, and by the way, as we learned with McChain, God has often seen fit to use young people to spur evangelistic zeal and zeal for missions through the church at large. Young person, do not view yourself as a second class citizen. Do not despise your youth. God can use you and often has used youth like you to spur zeal, religious fervor within his church, even among the adults, although technically it shouldn't be that way. It should be the adults leading the young people. In 1742, Brainerd was expelled from school. How can this be? Well, he was expelled for criticizing one of his teachers, saying, someone had asked them, what do you think about so-and-so? And there was a lot of hypocrisy among the professors. Beautiful on the outside and on the inside. Someone had asked him what they thought about so-and-so's prayer. And Brainerd said, just in passing, in a private group, that this particular teacher had no more grace than a chair. Well... A student overheard the remark and that person ran off and tattled on Brainerd and told the authorities. It came down to Brainerd. Brainerd was honest. He said, yes, I did say that. And no matter how hard he tried to fix his error, the school would not allow him to return. Well, Brainerd was devastated, especially since at that time, No one could be an official pastor in Connecticut without a recognized college degree. By the way, till Brainerd's dying day, he believed that his punishment that he received at Yale was unjust. And it was far too severe. But what would you do? He had all of these plans. He had been converted. He he gave his life to Christ Now he's going to the ministry, and then this happens. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You see, God had great plans for Brainerd, but he had to move him through some difficult times that he did not expect. And Brainerd could not see what these plans were at the time. But rather than becoming bitter with God or leaving the faith or pouting over his unfair treatment, Brainerd got busy with the next best available option, which was missions to the Housatonic Indians in nearby Massachusetts. I mean, who wants to do that? No one. 
especially those earning their fancy degrees at Yale College. So you actually don't need a degree to do this. We need a missionary. He says, I'll do it. And though he would only live for four more years, he became one of the most influential missionaries of all time. The fruit of his ministry at first seems small. He did little translation work. He started a school for a few Indian children. There was a small awakening of the spirit. While he was a missionary among the Indians where dozens, perhaps even scores of Indians were converted. But it really wasn't what Brainerd did. Again, similar to McChain. It wasn't so much of what he did that made the greatest impact. It was who he was. Brainerd is still remembered today because of his godly life and the journal that covers this. Brainerd left behind a journal that was later published by Jonathan Edwards. The man in whose house Brainerd died of tuberculosis. So Brainerd dies in Edwards' home. And we haven't covered Edwards yet, but he was perhaps the greatest mind that America has ever produced. A godly pastor and missionary during this time in the United States. Just to get an idea of how much Edwards respected this young man, Brainerd. Edwards' teenage daughter, Jerusha, died soon after Brainerd died. There's some discussion if there was some kind of romance there, but we won't know because he died too soon. But Jerusha died soon after the, afterwards, most likely having to do with the same kind of sickness that Brainerd had. She tried to nurse him back to health. She was by his bedside. And for Edwards to know that this man was at least indirectly responsible for my daughter's death, and yet he still writes the, or covers the journal of Brainerd, is amazing. In this journal, Brainerd talks about his loneliness. He talks about fasting and prayer. He talks about longing for souls. He talks about all kinds of things. He, he talks about the day his horse was poisoned. He, he talks about how his longing for holiness would keep him up at night. He talked about his battle to love the Indians. And to be really honest, I really don't love the Indians. And oh, yes, I do love the Indians and the battle in his own heart. All who read this book and all who have read this book loved it because it showed a man who was willing to endure difficulties and a man who was unwilling to quit. In fact, in missions history, the cannon that shot some of the world's Greatest missionaries throughout the world into great commission work and into the harvest field was David Brainerd's journal. Why did you go to the mission field? Why did you go to the mission field? Oh, because there was a day that I was reading David Brainerd's journal 
And there was a stirring in my heart, and I said, I want that. It was the life of Brainerd that these great missionaries pointed to. Henry Martin to Persia, David Brainerd. Robert Morrison to China, David Brainerd. David Livingston to Africa, David Brainerd. William Carey to India, David Brainerd. But in case you're really excited now to read David Brainerd's journal, I need to warn you of something. His journal is unlike any journal you have ever read. In fact, Edwards warns us at the beginning. When you get to the journal, Edwards has a preface. And Edwards warns us at the start of two weaknesses. He calls them imperfections. He says, I just want to warn you, Brainerd has two imperfections. He used that word specifically because he didn't want to call them sins. They weren't necessarily sins. They weren't necessarily immoralities, but he called them imperfections. One of them was his excessive work ethic. He said he just worked too hard, especially for his frail body, and ultimately it affected his poor health, and probably he died young because of his excessive work habits. But the main weakness that, or imperfection that Edwards brought out was a personality that was bent toward depression, melancholy, gloominess. There really is a lot of dour, dark writings in Brainerd's journals. Even after his conversion... I said this to my wife. Nearly every journal entry for a particular day references some kind of despair over his sinful heart. It's difficult to find an entry, especially in the early parts, without some kind of reference to his sinful heart. I could give you dozens of examples, and that's not an exaggeration. Let me just give you some. Examples, quote, in my morning devotions, bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness, or I deserve hell every day for not loving my Lord more, or God was pleased this morning to give me such a sight of myself as made me appear very vile in my own eyes. Or, I have been almost ready to die with the view of the wickedness of my own heart. Or, This morning I saw so much of my hellish vileness that I appeared worse to to myself than any devil. 
I wondered that God would let me live and wondered that people did not stone me. Much more that they would ever hear me preach. Or, I look to myself like the vilest fellow in the land. Or, I went into the meeting house ashamed to see any came to hear such an unspeakably worthless wretch. <coughs> or, I thought myself the worst wretch that ever lived. It hurt me and pained my very heart that anybody should show me any respect. Get ready to read that page after page after page. Now, as I read that, I sat back in my chair and I thought, is that a good model? Should we talk that way? Is this something that Christians should aspire to? There is a point reading through, and it is tough reading to go through it, and it's a lot of material. There's a point where I just wanted to say, this is not helpful. This is not enjoyable. This is not inspiring. Now, to be fair to Brainerd, before I balance this out later on, just to balance those quotes out of despair, this is not all he wrote about. He often spent long hours, in fact, sometimes he'd spend an entire day alone in the woods fasting and praying and speaking of the sweetness of Jesus Christ and longing for communion with him. That's filled in the book as well. But his journals were no doubt morose. And again, Edwards warns us of it. And then later on, after his journal, Edwards gives more comments on his journal. Well over a dozen times, Brainerd spoke of wanting to die. It could have been two dozen times. Here's one example. <coughs> Quote, oh, death, death, my kind friend, hasten and deliver me from dull monotony. Now, I want to caution you not to do something that I was tempted to do. If you are tempted at this point to judge Brainerd harshly for his constant depression and you find it easy to chastise Brainerd and there is some warrant to chastise Brainerd. Let me ask you two questions that I had to ask myself and I had to admonish myself with. Question number one. How many people do you know of today that spend whole days in communion and fasting with their Lord? And if the answer is, I don't, 
then let us not be quick to judge David Brainerd. Second question. Is the current society, our current world, given to humble reflection and pursuit of righteousness? Or is it given to the love of self and narcissistic entertainment? And if again our answer is, it's the latter, let us put our hands over our mouth when we look at Brainerd. Jonathan Edwards gives two amazing quotes that really put David Brainerd's quotations here in perspective. I'm going to give you a quote. It's a little bit more lengthy than I'd like to give. But you're going to hear the word this several times. And at the end of the quote, I'd like you to tell me what you think the this is referring to. Here we go. This was what drew his heart. This is Edward speaking about Brainerd. This was the center of his soul. This was the ocean to which all the streams of his religious affections tended. This was the object that engaged his eager thirsting desires and earnest pursuits. He knew no true excellency or happiness but this. This was what he longed for most vehemently and constantly on earth. And this was with him the beauty and blessedness of heaven. Can you guess what the this was? Here it is. Quote. It was to be perfectly holy and perfectly exercised in the holy employments of heaven. When that is your world, when, is that, when that is your center, when that is your foundation, when that is the center of your universe to be holy like Christ, we're going to talk more like Brainerd. Perhaps a greater longing for holiness would make more people talk like Brainerd. He loathed his sin. Edwards writes, How tender was his conscience. How apt was his heart to smite him. How easily and greatly was he alarmed at the appearance of moral evil. How great and constant was his jealousy over his own heart. How strict his care and watchfulness against sin. How deep and sensible with the wounds that said made his conscience. Those evils that are generally accounted small. 
were almost an insupportable burden to him. We don't talk like Brainerd because we don't have a sensitive conscience like Brainerd. We don't want to be holy like Brainerd. We live in a narcissistic world that loves self and we don't have enough Christians loathing self, hating self, despising self. Well, Brainerd gives us even more than his journals. His journals that speak about his own lowliness and desire to be holy. Brainerd gave the church another tremendous gift. And that is in his journals, besides the devotional aspects of it. This, the, this, uh, in spite of the, his expressing longingness for holiness. He also talked about the methods that he used of reaching the Indians. This is a great book for missions. He gave some of the methods that he used of reaching the Indians. And I'll give you a couple of these methods. First, he learned the Indian language. Now, he did often, especially in the beginning, use a translator. Another method he used was writing a catechism. And that in itself is not necessarily unusual. But what was surprising about the catechism that he wrote was that the majority of the questions simply demanded a yes or no answer. I thought that was very interesting. Obviously, to make it easy for the culture that had very little education. Well, I just know that I hold to the Westminster Standards, and that's what I'm going to teach to the Indians. Not Brainerd. Let me give an example of one of the questions. Question Does God require us to do anything that will hurt us and take away our comfort and happiness? Answer, no. Next question. And he even said, at the end of the first something like 12 questions, he said, I was so excited that they answered all the questions correctly and there's not one person who answered it incorrectly. Rebuke Paul. Maybe we hold our children or our particular setting to too high of a standard. He also enumerated the many difficulties a missionary to the Indians would face. There was many. Let me just give you three of them that he listed. One challenge was teaching thoughts about God in a way that could be understood. He said the Indian language was so limited. There was no words for savior, salvation, sinner, justice, faith. Grace, condemnation, repentance, justification, adoption, glory, and heaven. That takes some real skill to teach the Bible if you don't have those words. Why is it again that the one who couldn't get a degree had to go to this place? It would think that our best, cleverest, wisest, gift, most gifted people should be going to the Indians. So Brainerd said he either had to teach the word in English... Or he had to explain it at length. So here he has the word justification. He either can give them the word justification. Or he can explain it by saying something like, when your heart is changed. He said the people were not awed 
or afraid of God's anger. (coughs) He said they would not accept that they were sinners, most of them. He said the only way that he could effectively teach them of their inner sin was to point to their naughty children and say, they're acting naughty not because you taught them, it's because it's inherent. They were born with that sin. Another difficulty, the second one, was the Indians' bad experience with quote-unquote Christianity. The Indians thought all Christians were hypocrites. Oh, we've seen, we've seen Christians come to our land over from yonder. Very interesting how Edwards and Brainerd explain this. Oh, Christians lie. Christians get drunk. They thought that Christianity was only a tool that foreigners were using to enslave them. And so Brainerd had to show them that there is a difference between a professing Christian and a real Christian. A third challenge was a lack of character. He said that during his preaching, children would scream and they would cry and the mothers would do nothing to correct it. He said the men were, quote, unspeakably lazy and slothful. And he said of the males, not one in a thousand of them had the spirit of a man. Oh, don't speak that way. No, that's every culture without the gospel. And if you want to see a culture that is hardworking, a culture that thinks well, It's going to be a culture that's heavily influenced by the gospel. Well, all of this, this life of David Brainerd, it all started with a few careless words and an unjust punishment. But the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Outsiders saw this particular case with Brainerd as an unfortunate mistake. Brainerd took it as God's providence. And he was strengthened by his strong confidence in God's plans. He kept on moving, kept on serving, and kept on living for Christ during the brief time that he had on this earth.